Welcome to Everyday Sustainability, where we will discuss the relevance of the sustainable agenda and the climate crisis. I am Andres, and I'm here today with Carmen, Zee, and Daniel. And we're going to be discussing a very relevant topic, and we think it's very interesting, which is why the world's well-being is our own well-being. So I think we should go around and introduce uh, ourselves. Okay, I'll start. Uh, my name is Carmen, uh, and I'm a psychology student, and I'm interested in sustainability, specifically from uh, specifically the aspect of uh, sustainable consumption, and how the current societal structure kind of encourages people to consume, whereas it that does not necessarily have the best interest of the planet at heart. Um, and so I'm just interested in looking for alternatives and figuring out the root of the problem and how to get more people informed. Um, and I specifically today will be discussing the topic of industrial agriculture. Okay, so hi, I'm Z and I'm a psychology student as well. Um, the starting point for my interest in sustainability is that like every summer, I always have the feeling like, oh my God, this summer is even hotter than last year. And I thought, well, something must go wrong. So I did my own research and learned that our planet is facing all kinds of challenges like global warming, climate change, and water pollution. So I decided to study sustainability and see what we as human beings can do to save our planet. So yeah, I'll go last. Uh, hi, my name is Daniel. I study international studies. And for me, sustainability was has always been really interesting because of its different layers. So on a local level, for example, on a very individual level, um, I started observing how uh, where I grew up in, with my family, we have a well and it has never been dry. And in the last four years, it went dry over the summer uh, multiple times, which is very rare. And that being connected to this very, very global phenomenon of climate change and environmental degradation um, got me really interested in sustainability because it's something that really goes across layers. And I think that is also something we'll look at in this podcast. Yeah, so I think we can all agree that sustainability has many different layers and topics that we can discuss. And one of them, one of the most debated ones, I think revolves around consumerism and how our own patterns of consumerism will affect our own well-being as well as the planet's well-being. And so in order to dive into this topic, I think it's interesting to start by taking a look at the bigger picture. And then that will make us, um, it will help us make sense of the following topics that we will discuss in this, in this podcast. So starting myself from my own background in political science. Uh, most of my research this year has been focused on economic globalization and how its consequences for the global system can be quite devastating when we're talking about sustainability and as well for um, the health and, uh, and society in general. And that's why um, lots of theories declare that economic globalization is basically at the root of mass consumerism due especially to the influence of neoliberalism in the 80s, who pushed uh, politicians such as Reagan or Thatcher in the 80s, which um, pushed the idea of a little to non-government intervention as a way to recover from the crisis in the 70s, especially the oil crisis, which were very devastating for the economy. 
And so its success was very influential and therefore lowered tariffs for trading and made trading and economic globalization way easier. And that's what started the whole trend, which I think ultimately led to the creation of the World Trade Organization, which is one of the pillars for boosting um, the lowering of tariffs and economic globalization as a whole, as well as the creation of free trade areas that are very famous such as the European Union, which we all know, but also Mercosur in, in Latin America or the, or the ASEAN in Asia. And with, I think that with that and easier trading systems, um, engaged more firms and companies um, to sell their products in the international market and increase the exports and imports balances of each country. And with that as well, every country had to kind of find um, their own, what is called comparative advantage, which means um, whatever each country is best at, they're gonna specialize their production in that so that ultimately they're gonna have more profit and more growth with that. Okay, um, so Andres, I just, mm-hmm. while listening to you, a question came to mind. Um, and I wanted to ask you whether sustainability and economic growth are always contradictions necessarily, um, or how does that work? So with our current economic theories, what we um, came to understand is that um, economic growth right now is not compatible with sustainability, especially for developing countries, which are trying to get a lot of economic growth in a short term. Mm-hmm. And to do that, most of them turn into dirtier weights of production first until they arrive to um, reach a certain economic threshold where they then can start um, putting forward uh, environmental policies. Mm-hmm. But the first stretch of the economic growth is always um, very polluting for developing countries. And that's why only developed or the global North countries can right now be concerned with the climate crisis or sustainability as a whole, because Mm -hmm. they have the resources to care about that while still creating um, growth. While developing countries cannot do that, they can only focus on growth. And to do that, they have to turn into polluting ways so that's the that's the main issue I think Mm, I see um and so what do you think because it sounds a lot more complicated than just instigating uh degrowth right Mm -hmm. so um how do you think that this could be tackled and how can how can we get people to find this to be an important issue well my take which is also very it can be considered very not realistic which is to um, start a trend where global north countries can start helping global south to turn into like cleaner ways of production or maybe um, providing resources and economic resources basically so they can tackle their own environmental problems while still creating growth. Mm-hmm. I think that's what could help the most but I think it's very unrealistic because cooperation be- between countries is always not very um, easy. Mm-hmm. I would say, but yeah, that's that's my that's what I think would help the most. But if we're talking about um, large scale consumerist behavior, um, mm-hmm. and that's 
essentially the motivator, right, for all of this industrial yeah. production, then um, perhaps, I mean, I don't know what you think about this, but what comes to mind for me is that maybe we should tackle it at a more consumerist level. So maybe like not uh, perpetuating this cycle of demand, you know? Um, yeah, so, for sure. Yeah. That what know. would help is that we would need to um, try to encourage local consumption Mm -hmm. which is inevitably, inevitably more expensive mm -hmm. because there are cheaper ways of production if we, if we favor economic globalization. So that's why economic globalization has boosted um, mass consumerism. Right. So the solution to that for me would be to either um, compensate the losses of production in that way, that makes mm -hmm. sense, and, and try to help consumers to choose uh, cleaner ways of, of buying and consuming mm -hmm. which is not an easy it's not an easy yeah. um, task but yeah. ultimately it's what we will need all to do there are some goods such as when we talked uh, when we had the lecture about the wooding wooding, wooding industry in the Solomon mm -hmm. Islands by Tessa Minter where mm -hmm. There are some goods such as wood, which is some countries cannot produce simply. So they have to rely on, on trading and other trading partners, mm -hmm. such as big wood producers as the Solomon Islands. So there are some parts of the economy that cannot be relocated. And some goods such as mm -hmm. wood will always have to rely on their uh, developing countries. Mm -hmm. And that's why I thought we should provide more aid to those countries so they can tackle their own environmental problems as well as societal problems as uh, Tessa Minter discussed in her lecture for mm. women in the wooden industry which they struggle a lot or yeah I think there are exceptions such as very basic products as wood. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think about industries or companies uh, not working for profit um, and rather so still like producing um, the products that they're producing at a more sustainable and local level, which is more expensive, as you said. But mm -hmm. um, I feel like often an obstacle to this is that you're not making profit. But could companies potentially orient themselves in a for non-profit organized like direction? Or I think as of now, if they're that could only happen if they're willing to significantly reduce their profits. Mm. Because the easy way to make profits right now is to just um, find the cheapest way of producing, the cheapest way yeah. of transporting, and yeah, make what it's called economies of scale, which is yeah, mm -hmm. producing more for less money. Yeah. So I think it would it's possible, but then it needs a lot of um, of engagement for the from the company and be willing to um, yeah get way less profits and struggle to compete with high, with bigger companies and potentially just go to bankruptcy and completely yeah. lose all your profits. Right. That's true, I guess, because you still have those really big corporations that are like kind of dominating the market, right? And exactly. they're so do you think that a place to start would be by directly addressing those big corporations that are dominating the market? And mm -hmm, who could definitely. do that? I think one of the main problems that comes to mind right now is um tax evasion basically instead mm. of having your company located in say spain for example like zara mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they locate their um 
their business hub basically in like very in a country with very low taxes mm-hmm. so they will have they will, they will pay basically no taxes and and lots of like the majority of big companies do that and i think actually paying taxes where you should mm-hmm. should be should be a very important thing that governments can can take action in this mm. but yeah. again because of the um, of the neo neoliberalist um, ways of governing in the 80s there's little to non-government intervention so lots of governments just don't care where their companies um, pay taxes and that's that's difficult right like that's a problem right because uh, I mean if there's going to be intervention it should be from a government and the government should I guess be the one that is providing companies with the incentives to go into a more sustainable direction or perhaps non-profit direction yeah definitely mm-hmm. but right now with the capitalist um mindset that is going mm-hmm. on in, like that rules the economic system right now most governments just do either do not dare or they do not care about um incentivizing those companies to pay taxes where they should because they they mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just very risky for them. So that's why I think they don't do it. Yeah. But yeah. Mm. That's really interesting. That's so interesting. So, yeah. This is what I think. It was interesting to look at this bigger picture of economic globalization and mm-hmm. mass consumerism. So I think it's also interesting to look at more specific topics that you guys are going to discuss. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, Carmen, I think you looked into food mm-hmm. and agricultural production so mm-hmm. maybe as I started uh, what can go wrong with that well it's about what is going wrong I think mm. uh, I mean I was looking specifically at the the cycle of consumption um, so in order to understand what exactly well I looked at understanding the process of industrial agriculture I also looked at current consumption rates and then I also looked at the uh, the aspect specifically of like how meat consumption is related to our health mm-hmm. um and i guess i could start specifically with the health aspect um because well just for some context um from my research uh i found that the average north american slash european eats around um 80 kilos to 110 kilos of meat per year um mm-hmm. that's like 70 billion animals um so already you can think about all of the water that's needed to grow the crops and to feed the animals and the land that's needed to maintain them. So yeah, I'll get back to that in a, in a second. But so um, without delving too much into the topic of nutrition, because I'm not a nutritionist myself and I don't study uh-huh. nutrition, I just find it interesting. Um, I mean, there have been a lot of studies that um, indicate that when you consume so much meat because that is a lot of meat that's well around 10 kilos per week i would say Mm -hmm. or per um so that's that's a lot i don't know if my math was correct um (laughs) um, but uh yeah so um the thing with um largely uh produced meat uh like factory meat is that Mm -hmm. Um, often it's pumped with a lot of growth factors and 
Uh, it's it, it gets a lot of antibiotics pumped into it as well. And so when people buy it from the store, um, they will eat it. And um, it often it can lead to antibiotic resistance, uh, which can be an issue because then when you become sick, for example, and you need to take antibiotics, um, mm -hmm. it might not have the same effects on you. Um, so you might not actually recover and you might have to take, continue to take antibiotics or higher doses, which again, does not, is not a sustainable pattern for your body. Um, right. right. Um, and you know, due to the dire conditions that I will get more into later on, um, meat is often con contaminated and they also inject, uh, different substances into it, such as, um, the heavy metals uh, are injected into mm -hmm. meat to also a lot of water that contains harsh chemicals um, to, to increase the weight of the meat, um, like to increase its mass um, so that they can sell it um, for a specific mass. But that's why I don't know if you've ever bought a really cheap meat from the supermarket. That's why it shrinks, no. you know, it's because it's right. just injected with water. I never noticed, actually. Yeah. Um, so... What do you think can we do and what are the, the, the consequences of that, would you say? Uh, what can we do to tackle these problems? The food aspect? Um, I mean, specifically, I think that uh, the amount of meat, um, because, I mean, there's more problems, actually. I should probably mention those first. Oh, yeah. There's oh, like... Yeah no problem at all i it's just it's just it's it, the list just goes on but i i yeah. collected the most important ones like uh, different um cancers and having mm -hmm. really harmful bacteria inside of your gut and high blood pressure cardiovascular disease you know and obviously the contamination mm -hmm. like salmonella that i was talking about as well like reduced fertility dementia um so what can we do i mean specifically talking about health because i'll get into the whole agriculture aspect in a second but in terms of our health uh i mean i've been looking into um studies and comparisons between a vegetarian diet a vegan diet and a um like kind of omnivore diet mm -hmm. um and you know often and and we have to be careful because i understand that like in terms of food food is a product right so companies want it to be sold so all all like the meat industry places a lot of money into research that later, you know, comes up with results that say that, um, you know, meat is really good for you. Like you should be consuming red meat. So it's, it's difficult like to know where to get our information. Um, but what we can do is just eat less meat because um, the vegan protein for instance um is attainable um you know like you you can find uh, plant-based sources i should probably mention that i'm vegan myself so i'm uh definitely not impartial to the subject um but uh they also they did research where uh vegans tend to be just a lot more lively they have uh lower levels of inflammation inside of their body um, there's also a lot of people who recover from like surgeries and uh, lifelong diseases, arthritis, etc., who convert to a vegan diet, and then they will they, they their um, their inflictions suddenly reduce so much. Um, so definitely, I mean, I, I definitely see that there's evidence 
to indicate that uh, eating less meat as a start, you know, could be really beneficial because mm-hmm. it's really not sustainable to be eating it. So especially not 80 kilos per year or 100 kilos per year. Like that's, that's insane. Yeah. So, and I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. And related to my topic that we discussed earlier, because mm-hmm. now you're talking about mainly North American and European meat consumption mm-hmm. patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's true that uh, compared to other places in the world and even within um, developed countries like in North America and Europe, mm-hmm. there are very different income um, areas. And compared to North America, for example, there are countries like India or lots of African countries that barely eat any meat, like Mm -hmm. regularly. And actually that's very interesting because it's one of the main indicators of economic growth. It's when the whole society starts eating meat itself. Mm. There's a whole theory regarding that. Oh wow. And when the society starts consuming more meat, it means that the economy is going well. Mm. So I don't know whether you, your ideas of rethinking the meat industry should also um, target countries like India or the countries that in Africa that are growing now? Should we also uh, take care of that or should we let them have their like very uh, consumerist meat patterns basically? Hmm. Or like, should we also tackle the problem from the bottom or should we start from the top? I don't know what's your hmm. thoughts well, about it- this. If I'm understanding your question correctly, mm-hmm. uh, I think that's so interesting. I, I actually, I, I didn't know that there was a specific um, relationship between the, the economic growth of a country and, and its meat consumption, but I, I suppose that makes sense. Um, I mean, we're, we're in, in the context of this podcast and also just for our own um, interests, uh, I think we're approaching this topic from the sustainability aspect. And mm-hmm. also, as I was asking you before, that's why I asked you, like, is growth uh, necessarily a contradiction to sustainability, right? So right. I-, I think that, like, we should definitely not uh, encourage the-, the growth of meat consumption in countries such as India and, and other countries in Africa, for example. And I was actually doing research um, on uh, India because India mm-hmm. has the lowest uh, meat consumption rates in the world, as far as I've found. Yeah. Um, and so they, uh, their health overall, like, I mean, they do consume a lot of uh, dairy products uh, in the form of ghee, uh, which is like a traditional um, butter-like uh, thing. Yeah, true. Yeah. Um, so they, they do definitely suffer from, from that, uh, in terms of like the rates of heart disease, but, uh, overall, like, um, for example, especially colorectal cancer and high and, um, metabolic syndrome and like rates of salmonella from meat consumption, like those are really low. Um, and I think that that definitely indicates that sustainability in terms of health, you know, like a sustainable diet, um, and so I actually think that it's, in my personal opinion, I think it's great how they're living and how they're um, consuming uh, their their products. If anything, like it should be even lower. Uh, but yeah, yeah. definitely. I, I, I do get your point. Yeah. If anything, we should get it from them. You know, we should learn <laughs> what their consumption patterns are 
Um, mm-hmm. And also because there's so many people in India, like imagine if all of India was eating as much meat as we are like that, that would be devastating for the world. True. Yeah. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. So yeah, definitely meat industry has a lot of impacts in the planet as well as people, mm-hmm. right? From your yeah. research. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. We can get into the planet now. So just for a little bit of information, um, there's two types of agriculture um, that is related to each other. Uh, There's industrial food animal production, which is um, where you mass produce meat, basically. And then there's also industrial agriculture, which is uh, known as intensive crop production. And so um, there's... The first one, uh, and the, for, in the case of industrial food animal production, that's when it's also called animal feeding operations. Um, and that's where animals are kept in really confined and um, inhumane conditions. Yeah. Uh, and they're raised in cages and stalls, and they're basically treated as factory products. Um, mm-hmm. And then intensive crop production is when a lot of land is cleared out and um basically crops are planted there um so those are the two types so yeah um very interesting hmm, i don't know um additionally um i would say that there i mean the thing is that this 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 industry is so massive right they make so much money and they i think the main problem that i found is that um prices are so low and it's because actually uh, there's an externalization of costs. So even people who like me don't consume any animal products whatsoever, I'm still contributing to the meat industry by um, taxes that I pay or by um, like the way that all of the costs are distributed uh, over products in general in the supermarket, I'm still paying for animal products. Um, and so actually it costs almost nothing to produce meat at all. Um, that was really interesting, something I found. Yeah. yeah. So now talking about yourself and to bring it back to our title of the pod, of the, this mm-hmm. episode, which is Everyday Sustainability, what do you think we can do in our everyday lives and our consumerist patterns Oof. to try to, yeah, try to do better? Ah, it's it's tricky um, because, uh, like, I want to say that you know the answer that I want to give is saying, like, to um, support smaller localized businesses, you know, and mm-hmm. spend more money on meat and buy it less frequently, and you know, do not waste and you know, do composting. Don't like don't just or just simply don't buy animal products but like I think regardless I think regardless of everything is really important to remember the impact on your health um Mm -hmm. because because even even if it was the most sustainable thing in the world which it's not it still would not be good for you uh in terms of your health you know um and I think it's definitely really important to support farmers because uh, another really big problem is is that these big um, meat industries, since they have such a, like, there's like five big meat companies and they're like dominating 95% of the market and they place uh, taxes on the independent 
farmers uh, to make it really expensive because every single piece of every single cattle that they're trying to sell, uh, they have to pay taxes on top of that. And so that it actually becomes really expensive for them to to um, produce meat. And mm -hmm. so they just don't do it so much. Um, and so it desensitizes uh, really like sustainable and um, more ethical farms from competing in the market. And that's that's an issue. Um, and so I would like to tell you that everybody should buy from local farms. But the problem with that is that with the current rates of meat consumption, mm -hmm. uh, we cannot afford for every single human being to have like at their own farm that they're going to to grow their own crops you know it's just we cannot we do not have enough space in the world to accommodate to every single person having ethically produced meat in order you know for them to eat like 110 kilos per year like it's that's 70 billion animals like i said you know we do not have space for so many billions of people to consume 70 billion animals no, definitely. But I think that also comes down a lot to, I would say, government intervention, because mm -hmm. for a poor family, for example, they, they want to find a source of protein. Mm -hmm. And the cheapest option is going to be uh, a steak at the supermarket. Mm -hmm. They're inevitably going to they're going to go for that. And yeah, that's why I think incentivizing vegan options or less, um, less meat consumption in general think it comes a lot mm. down to um, inequality and income yeah. inequality in general. So I think it's a, yeah, it's a very interesting topic that covers a lot of our world yeah. problems currently. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, if we just, um, if we reduce uh, the meat consumption, we can even reduce agricultural land use up to 55%. Like India has a lot of space. Um, and it's a really big country, but they also have a lot of open space because they they don't need um, they they don't need all this space for farming. Um, and like if our current consumption patterns they continue, it actually needs like 178. This is some data that I found. It requires like 178 percent more land to keep up with the rising population because, of course, you know we're not stuck in time. Like we have to keep going, and our population is still growing. And if our the current consumption rates continue. I think this is a good point to end on, actually, for me. Um, if our current consumption mm -hmm. rates continue the way that it is, we'll probably need close to almost 200% more land to keep up with the rising population. And that, that will definitely, it is, it, it will get rid of all the rainforest to make room for more farm. Well, they were even considering building farmland on top of water. And imagine all the resources that that's mm. going to take. So definitely not sustainable, yeah. which is the topic of our, yeah. our podcast. Thank you so um, much for your questions. No, it was really interesting. Thank you for your input. So now generally another everyday realm for us is clothing. But while we all wear clothes and it's clear why it is every day. Maybe Z, you could explain to our audience why clothing is also a matter of being sustainable or not. Um. I think clothing or the fashion industry itself is not born unsustainable. However, the way we make, use, and throw away our clothes can be unsustainable, especially considering the fast fashion part of the industry. 
So um, if you go out and look around, you will see a lot of people coming out from fast fashion stores like Zara, H&M, and Forever 21 with their new purchases and hat. They love trendy clothes, but the trend's always changing. So after wearing those clothes for like two or three times, they just throw them away, which apparently can lead to excessive waste. And most people, they actually forget that fast fashion is one of the most pollutive industries in the world. So they, or maybe I should say we, have all sacrificed our mother earth in exchange for a price deal in one way or another. And here I would like to ask you, what can go wrong here with the world and what impact does the fashion, does the fast fashion industry or fashion industry in general have on all of us? Well, I think a lot of things can go wrong with our world or with our environment. And the first thing coming to my mind is excessive water usage. It's estimated that this industry consumes one-tenth of all the water used industrially to run factories. And just to give some statistics to help you understand this alarming water usage, it takes approximately 3,000 liters of water on average for one t-shirt. So you see, water usage here is really a big problem. Furthermore, textile dyeing, as one of the important procedures for making clothes, requires toxic chemicals that subsequently end up in oceans. So the fast fashion industry can lead to water pollution as well and do harm to animals living in the ocean. Also, for fast fashion brands to make profits at low prices, they have to cut their costs from somewhere else. So they rely heavily on non-recyclable materials like synthetic fibers since they are much cheaper. And again, those materials are being found in oceans. So although fast fashion is good for our wallet, it is detrimental for our planet in the long run. So as you're a psychology student, could you also tell us about the possible negative effects on people's mental health, maybe? Yeah, sure. Um, one example might be that if you are an environmentally conscious person, so you are aware of all the envir environmental impacts that fast fashion has on our planet, then the guilt of indiscriminate shopping of fast fashion can actually disrupt your inner peace and it can cause anxiety, depression, and give you a sense of like worthlessness. And sadly, for those environmentally conscious people, the option of shopping from a sustainable brand is out of reach because of the price tags that usually accompany those sustainable brands. Um, I'd love to give another example as well. So the fear of missing out or FOMO. FOMO refers to the feeling or perception that others are having more fun, living better lives, or are experiencing better things than you do. In terms of fast fashion, it means that people are afraid of missing out on the latest fashion trends. And researchers have found that this type of FOMO can actually trigger a deep sense of envy, anxiety, and even affects people's self-esteem. And now without trying to 
make up some weird conspiracy theory that is not unwanted, is it? Um, good question. I would say, though the primary goal of fast fashion is not to trigger people's FOMO or anxiety, it does take advantage of people's FOMO in order to sell more products. So, where the fashion industry average for designing and producing a new product is six months, fast fashion brands like Zara have been known to do this within one week. They sample new ideas from like runway and celebrity culture, turn them into garments at an incredible pace, and make their clothes new trends every week with the help of advertising and social media. So, if people want to be on trend and avoid FOMO, they have to buy their products. Also, another f- key feature of fast fashion is its cheap price. They sell their products at an incredibly low price, like $5 or $10, which actually allows all segments of society, irrespective of class, income, and background, to engage in the hedonistic and psychogenic pleasure of fashion. So, you see, due to the fast, cheap, and somehow psychologically manipulative feature, this industry actually encourages overconsumption. Now, to go back to our podcast theme, how do we become sustainable in our everyday lives? Well, I think first, in order to contribute to a more sustainable world and wardrobe, we as individuals don't need much to get started. It all begins with using your brain while buying clothing. So always buy consciously and ask yourself questions like, do I really need it? And will I still wear it next year? Um, also, I can completely understand people's desire to be on trend. So I will encourage people to buy secondhand because now vintage is becoming a new trend. So why not buy it, enjoy the fashion, and at the same time contribute to a more sustainable planet. Also, instead of buying those cheap fast fashion clothes, don't be afraid to spend more on the garment that can last longer. Since from a psychological perspective, if you spend more money on an item, you will often take better care of it and realize the value of garments you wear and appreciate the attention and work that went into it. In other words, if you spend more on a garment, you will less likely to throw it away. And the last thing we can do as individuals, um, I think, is to do our own research and check which brands are working on sustainability and then buy their clothes instead. For the business world or for companies, I think maybe they could try new circular business models like clothing libraries or peer-to-peer clothes sharing. But since I'm not an expert in this field, I will not explain these models in detail. Um, in the end of my part, I'd like to provide a bit of information about the things behind the glamorous fast fashion industry. Hopefully, this could be another reason for you guys to say no to fast fashion. So, in order to keep garments cheap for consumers, fashion companies often build their factories in low-income countries like Thailand or India, so they can pay their workers very low wages without much pushback. 
They also cut financial corners by ignoring ethical working condition standards. Um, for example, employees in fast fashion work long hours in warehouse without air conditioning and are not offered benefits such as health insurance, paid sick leave, and personal time off. So every purchase of a fast fashion product may very well be supporting worker exploitation. And now we will again zoom out from the individual level to the community level because it definitely does not just matter what we eat and where, but also where and how we live, right, Daniel? Well, yes, of course, because most humans uh, live in, most of us, I think most of us here in the podcast as well live in urban areas. Mm. Um, and there are more and more people in urban areas. So the ratio of urban to rural population is increasing dramatically. And we can see that across the world. So how we manage these areas in which we live is deeply intertwined, not just with our personal health, but also deeply intertwined with how sustainable we can or uh, want to actually become. That is very interesting. But what do you think um, is there to be done? Well, so firstly, one of the key ideas is to uh, move from these concepts of very strict zoning to rather dense but more livable spaces. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the idea of zoning, so basically that you have different areas in a city, uh, one, for example, for manufacturing, one for living. Uh, one of the most iconic images of this is, of course, suburbanization. So having large boroughs with uh, single-family houses uh, with a garden around them uh, is one of the is is suburbanization. So you have a relatively dense, but not very dense, uh, er uh, densely populated area, mm -hmm. and that is also associated with having a lot of commuters because all these people need to somehow get to work, and. Then you also have uh, relatively large living areas and relatively large areas that are not available anymore to nature because uh, of the increased space they take up. Right. And what do you think um, this zoning process actually does to us? And what, and what would happen if we try to change this? Zoning generates very long commutes and it to some extent also disconnects communities. So for example, you have to drive to work for an hour or two hours. Um, and so integrating these zones and making sure that uh, commuting times are shorter um, brings people closer together. It also helps against alienation and loneliness because you know in these uh, suburbs, uh, it's very common to not know your neighbors. And by doing that, you don't just bring people closer together, but you also benefit uh, the environment and you benefit your personal health. Um, so that also, of course, means that we need to change our habits. You talked about uh, overconsumption earlier. It also means that we will have to get rid of oversized shopping centers that we all uh, have to drive to. Um, and we also have to get rid of office centers. So all these very centralized uh, ways of organizing our lives have to actually more or less leave our urban landscape um, because otherwise we will continue having commutes. We will continue to have very inefficient use of space and continued urban sprawl. 
And if we actually do that, we have more livable cities. So if you have walkable neighborhoods in which you live, in which you work, in which you have your social interactions, in which you can also um, consume what you have to consume or what you want to consume, um, you generate greater social integration, you generate greater resilience, uh, you have less loneliness that is very beneficial for your mental health. And um, this has, to some extent, also been shown in the ongoing pandemic. You have seen inner cities full of shops that were all closed down and essentially were confronted with all this empty, useless space that no one could use for, whilst people um, were less resilient because of exactly that, because everybody had to stay at their home and everybody was very disconnected to some extent as well. So it's, yeah, two different sides of the same coin. And what would you say that, what do you think could be done to, um, yeah, help this process of concentrating housing and small businesses? Because no one owns a city, so it makes it difficult to actually put into place, doesn't it? Well, there's a lot we can actually do. We can, for example, as uh, Carmen has already said, supporting businesses, local businesses goes a long way. Um, as citizens, we can also all participate in municipal policymaking. That is the advantage municipal policymaking has vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, international policymaking because there is more there are more possibilities to actually uh, influence these processes. And we can make these choices ourselves, for example, when we look for housing for ourselves, um, especially later in our careers, um, it makes a difference whether we choose to live in an apartment with other people, with communal spaces, uh, or whether we actually uh, build a house for ourselves and contribute to this urban sprawl. Right, so is this just in the clouds or do you think it's some academic dream? Um, actually, no, it's something that is happening already. Uh, as an example, a relatively wealthy neighborhood, but definitely still uh, an inspiration could be the Viertel Zwei in Vienna. Um, it's a neighborhood that consists of apartment buildings and office buildings that are very close together. So employers um, do not have very long commutes. Um, you have very sustainable uh, heat and cooling systems. So basically these units also barely use energy. Um, you have the Economic University of Vienna in walking distance as well. Um, you have a very good connection to the Vienna subway system. And you also have local businesses and you have uh, spaces that can be used for very different purposes. So you have the spaces that are that can be used as recreational facilities or that can be used for uh, small businesses. And sometimes these uses are also combined. So there's actually a lot going on there. Of course, this is more of a gentrified project in this specific mm -hmm. case, but there are actually already similar attempts. For example, if you look at the uh, Harbor City in Hamburg, where you have different types of apartments also in the same buildings where you also have social housing in the same buildings and you still have these communal areas. Yeah, definitely. And doing that seems really nice, but I think not everybody can live where they, where they work, right? So 
well, except if you're working from home during the pandemic, but I think that's going to change uh, sooner or later. So what would you say about this? Yeah, it's true that a lot of us spend a ridiculously long amount of, amount of time, not us yet as students, but uh, probably a lot of our parents and us later on as well, uh, might spend a lot of time in the daily traffic jam, um, going to work, going to our free time activities. And that is largely because most a lot of the space in our cities is dedicated towards uh, cars and in uh, personal transportation. And so if our municipalities provide greater uh, public transportation and uh, larger bicycle lanes, for example, uh, we become more efficient in terms of space, we consume less energy, we pollute less, and actually also benefits our health, not just through the pollution, but also because statistically speaking, um, commuting by car is much more stressful than commuting by public transport or cycling. And in cities where this has actually already been implemented, as an example, could uh, some large cities in East Asia uh, could be named, um, there you avoid this commuter traffic jam and the air quality has greatly improved. Yeah. So, but here comes, I would say, the annoying question again, which is, what can we do ourselves? Because talking about these ideas is nice until you live in some city that would probably lack parts of this infrastructure. And especially if in some places they have, uh, as we've talked before, neoliberal governments that will not like any kind of state intervention. So they will not um, invest in all these projects that you're talking about. So again, what do you think us can do? Well, the, the nice thing about municipal policymaking is not just that it's more accessible, it's to some extent also less connected to uh, the great ideologies or ideas in politics. So with even maybe more neoliberal governments, you could potentially argue with the benefits that uh, municipal policy uh, making in this regard um, could bring. And then, for example, also using these opportunities yourself, like even if your city has relatively small bike lanes, cycling to work generates pressure because the more people do that, uh, the greater this constituency the municipality has to cater to becomes. And so using this infrastructure generates uh, a lot of pressure. And maybe it also helps to say that, for example, the Netherlands, which is by international standards, a relatively liberal country, um, is actually a great example for this. So the, Rand the Randstad region in the Netherlands um, has relatively accessible trains. It has a very expensive bicycle infrastructure. Um, you have very uh, significant public transportation systems also within cities. And this kind of also helped this region grow together and become economically relevant because, for example, you have uh, Amsterdam as a relatively large finance and technology hub, you have Rotterdam as a trade hub in the Randstad. And so this is only possible to, to a large extent because of this uh, traffic. And so I think it's also about becoming aware of these opportunities that come with this kind of equitable mobility. Right. And apart from all these examples that you just gave us, what do you think could make cities more livable? Maybe some other 
um, yeah, infrastructure examples or yeah, ideas that are being put into place. Yeah, so what I talked about, of course, is relatively uh, economic um, mm -hmm. and it can benefit the economy, of course, but it also definitely benefits uh, your personal health and your personal well-being. Um, one of the things that is really only about your personal well-being could be transforming our urban uh, areas to, yeah, some kind of more uh, green, more livable spaces. Um, things like parks, green riversides, uh, bis bicycle uh, lanes or exercising opportunities uh, go a really long way in improving uh, the urban population's health. And it has actually been shown that, for example, uh, during the corona pandemic, having uh, green spaces available uh, increases the level of exercise that is done and then also increases or improves uh, health levels in the communities. And so providing these green social spaces outside of homes um, really goes a long way. And they also, on top of all that, uh, can improve the urban atmosphere. They can cool urban climates and yeah, offer also space. And in the end also, for example, push creativity among citizens. True, and but this overall, I like, cannot be seen in isolation. There's more to it, I would say. Yeah, so definitely one thing that uh, comes to mind here is that it can also be uh, supporting localized food production. So you have to come back to the first topic. Uh, you can use urban gardening to become more self-sufficient. Uh, you can better use urban areas and you can improve uh, people's well-being and that yeah that again really goes a very long uh, way and what we can also do for example is frequenting parks again using infrastructure creates public pressure to some extent and then for example there are some very interesting initiatives uh, coming along the way for example uh, in the context of increased drought and money scarcity in municipalities in the cities of Berlin and Leipzig in Germany they have uh Built up networks in which you can become some kind of godfather or godmother to uh, trees that belong to parks. And then uh, by doing that, you, uh, you get assigned a tree to some extent and it gets to, you take responsibility to some extent, but then you also preserve these urban green spaces. True. So I'm sure you've done lots of research about this. And what would you say would be an example, like a perfect representation of what we're talking about? Do you have any examples that come to mind, any cities? Yeah, one very notable example that uh, has also gained some media attention can be found in South Korea, uh, in the South Korean capital, Seoul. Um, there has been really uh, e extreme growth and, this, uh, and Seoul became a really, really dirty city full of smog in the 1970s. Um, and in spite of wealth increasing until uh, now, actually, it was only until the early 2000s when things started to slowly change. So, for example, uh, rivers were very dirty. One example being Cheonggyecheon. It's a relatively small city, uh, a relatively small river in the inner city of Seoul, and it was soon sealed off and used for a highway. But then, at some point, the municipality actually 
uh, opened the highway and created a municipal uh, park and cultural space. And similarly, for example, the larger river that flows through, through Seoul, the Han River, has also been transformed. So the riverside that had previously been used for highways was transformed into a large park in which you can cycle, in which you can exercise. And these different spaces that were uh, reinterpreted into more green spaces by the riversides along old railway, railway tracks, uh, even on old highway bridges, um, you had these different initiatives uh, towards yeah greener areas, and it has really greatly improved health, the health of urban citizens. It has increased the uh, urban climate. It has notably uh, lowered the city's temperatures in the summers as well. So, yeah, it's really a place where you can get a lot of inspiration from this. That is a fascinating topic. So thank you very much for your input as well. Would you like to send us home with like a brief conclusion maybe about your topic? Well, so cities are the places where we will decide large parts of uh, where this world goes and how we will live. And uh, so I think... Uh, if we manage to change that, we will also uh, impact a lot of the other aspects that have been mentioned already. Um, for example, food consumption and uh, consumption of clothing. So cities have also become relevant global actors uh, for sharing ideas and technologies, and maybe also uh, becoming more sustainable, even in the absence of supporting governments. So there's really a lot we can do on this local level. There's also a lot we can do on an individual level here. And I think what is really interesting about uh, sustainability in general is that you have all these different levels that intersect and all these different things we can do. And so I think that is something that in spite of all these negative news um, we should consider is that we can do a lot and that um, yeah, that change is in fact underway and we don't really need to construct these huge ideas. A lot of the things we would need to become more sustainable are already there. We need to just pick up the tools. Definitely. So that's great. And I think with this conversation, we've seen that um, sustainability can be seen from individual with food and clothing, municipal, just like Daniel talked about and global level and how each of these levels will shape each other. And that's why it's such an interesting issue and very interdisciplinary one as well, because we all come from different disciplines. So yeah, and it also will show that change in these systems is definitely possible if we have the right tools and the right intentions. So yeah. with that hopeful note, I think we would all <laughs> like to conclude and thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Remember that the world's well-being is also your well-being because when we are engaging in healthy practices for ourselves, like sustainable health practices, we are most likely also engaging in a sustainable environmental practice. So thank you so much, Andres, for all your questions and for your hosting. Thank you for your input. It was very nice talking to you and see you on the next episode of Everyday Sustainability.